Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we're speaking with Dr. Adam Rabinowitz, who is an associate professor in the Class 6 department here at the University of Texas at Austin. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist, as most little kids do at one point or another. And his graduate student, Susan Crane. I didn't know that I really wanted to be an archaeologist until after I graduated college. Because our episodes are mostly on contemporary subjects from our region, we're very excited to learn more about the world of ancient Romania. I hope you enjoy taking this little trip in time with us. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. We're very happy to have you on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. So, before we begin talking about this fascinating subject of archaeology, can you tell a little bit about what got you so interested in the in this subject and in this region? So it's interesting that you should say that we were traveling back in time, mm-hmm. because that, I think, was the initial attraction for me to archaeology. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist, as most little kids do at one point or another. Um, and so I knew that I was interested in things that were buried in the ground and in things that happened a long time ago. But it didn't really gel until I was 15. And my aunt, who is also an archaeologist, invited me to come on an excavation in Sicily mm. for two months. And I accepted uh, immediately and realized in the process of that experience that doing archaeology is the closest any of us are likely to come to actual time travel. Mm-hmm. in that you get to peer backwards into the daily lives of forgotten people and handle materials that no one has touched for 2,000 or 2,500 or 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's a window into who we were as a, a species at a very different moment that has always been really attractive to me. I came about it in a bit of a different way. Um, I didn't know that I really wanted to be an archaeologist until maybe after I graduated college. I had studied Slavic studies and classics, so the ancient world, in undergrad, and I graduated not really knowing what to do, but knowing what I liked. And as I was looking into grad school and reading over my old work, I realized that I really liked archaeology in at least what I like to read about, what I wrote about, because I, I think the most exciting thing about archaeology is realizing that human behavior doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. Technology does, and cultures do, but behavior doesn't really change, in my opinion. And so I loved tracking that in the ancient mm-hmm. world. bit about archaeology because in my mind when I think of archaeology I think of like um you know people with these little like uh little wide rimmed hats bent over like excavating ancient pots and uh, human bones and I think that's certainly a part of it but what really fascinates me about your research is that you use a lot of like scientific uh, methods to determine some very interesting things about the ancient world so what kind of um methodology do you use in archaeology besides just, you know, excavating things? And what can it tell us about the ancient world? 
So we rarely wear pith helmets these days. <laughs> uh, every every once in a while, maybe. And the the popular image of archaeologists often involves something derived vaguely from Indiana Jones, <laughs> right? It's mostly happening yeah. in Egypt. The objects are mostly intact. Mm -hmm. Often they're cursed. Um, <laughs> this is rarely the case, again, in most terrestrial archaeology when you're working on the ground, mm -hmm. on land. No cursed objects. Uh, no cursed objects, <laughs> no intact objects <laughs> for the most part. So you are, you are looking at fragments. You are mm -hmm. looking at partial pieces of a puzzle that when uh, it was happening was a, was a whole. And you're essentially doing detective work. That is, you're trying to fill in the gaps between all of those pieces. And initially, the history of archaeology is such that people started by looking at textual sources. Mm -hmm. So they looked at the writings that had been left behind by people in the ancient world, mm -hmm. literature in particular. And at a certain point, they became interested in non-literary texts. So they started looking at things that people had written on stone. And those are more like documents for the reconstruction of history, the history of governments, of treaties, of mm -hmm. international relations. And at that point, they realized that they could get more of those things by digging them up. So they began digging them up, and they also were looking for nice artistic things. There are some sites where you do get whole objects, like Pompeii, and that's where archaeology really started, with mm -hmm. uh, people trying to dig up whole objects that were nice. And as it developed, it became clearer and clearer that the texts only told one part of the story. And to understand the rest of the story, you had to look at other kinds of remains. And that's where you get the sort of Indiana Jones image of archaeologists digging up pots and bodies. Because these are things that tell us something about how people lived. And tombs have always been fascinating to archaeologists because they are snapshots. So there is a particular moment in time, if the burial has been undisturbed, when that burial and all the things in it were formed. It's harder to deal with the evidence left by daily life over time, because if you think about your house, you generate garbage in the course of living, you break a pot, but then you put the pot in a trash can and throw it away. So the things that you break aren't always left where you broke them, unless there's some terrible disaster. As archaeology became more sophisticated, people became more interested in trying to reconstruct the sequence of processes that led to the broken pot shirt that you're holding in your hand. And that's part of that detective story. And so what we're doing is just a continuation of that attempt to find new ways to do the archaeological detective work. Mm -hmm. New methods and procedures over the last half century have made our work easier and have allowed us to look at different kinds of things. So in the 1950s, we started to be able to use radiocarbon dating mm -hmm. to get independent dates beyond just stylistic attributes. And now a lot of the work that we're doing, especially with human burials, is not just finding a burial and taking out the nice things, and if there's a mummy, then looking at the mummy or putting it in a museum, but rather trying to understand the biography of the individual or individuals in a particular grave through the chemical and molecular analysis of their remains, through the analysis of the chemical properties of the landscape that produced the food and water that they ate and drank. So we're using uh, isotopic analysis, stable isotopic analysis to understand diet and also human mobility. So where in a landscape somebody might have been uh, born and grown up, spent their early life versus where they were buried. We're also looking at genetics, both of human beings, mainly to establish relatedness within a burying population. 
the site at Histria has a very large Roman period cemetery that we've been examining, mm -hmm. but also looking at the genetics of the oral microbiome through fossilized dental calculus to understand what people's mouth bacteria looked like and what that meant for health and also for um, migration and movement and diet. So these are, these are new tools that add new pieces to this larger puzzle that we're trying to address, but we still are looking at the old stuff too. We still yeah. look at pots and bodies and <laughs> walls and uh, layers of dirt. That's the, really the bread and butter of archaeologists. Last summer, you were both at the ancient site of history in Romania for your project on diet, health, and mobility in the ancient world. So, um, what did you uncover there? Like, what is this history of this? What is the history of Histria? Um, what did you discover there? And do you plan on working on it in the future? So I'll start, but I want to make sure that Susan has a chance to, to give her impressions as well um, from the graduate student perspective. We uh, started this project at Histria primarily because my interests lie in early Greek colonization and in culture contact. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the earliest colonies the Greeks set up on the Black Sea coast. And it serves as a, a hub for interactions between Greeks and local populations on the western side of the Black Sea and all the way up the Danube into Central Europe as well. So my initial interest was in the Archaic period, but as I spent some time with the archaeologists who have been working on the site for decades, I learned that there was also this Roman cemetery in an area of the city that had been occupied as a residential quarter in the Archaic period. And the Roman cemetery hadn't attracted a lot of attention because the graves don't have many objects in them and are not very nice. Um, they're just sort of earth graves. So people were aware of the bones, they had collected the bones, but there had been very little study done. And around the same time, I became involved in the Planet Texas Grand Challenge Initiative, which is essentially looking at ways that we can plan and project the future of Texas through the middle of the century to try to make sure that we are resilient in the face of pretty massive challenges provided by climate change and demographic shifts. So there will be twice as many of us and a lot less water, and the water won't be where we want it to be because it'll all be over Houston for five minutes. Um, and the people are all gonna be in the urban corridor that stretches from Dallas to San Antonio. So it's gonna be a very different environment. But it allowed me to think about past situations that are analogous in some ways. And Histria is near the mouth of the Danube, the Danube is a natural border between the steppe and the Mediterranean and Balkan world. And the area around Histria, the Romanian region of Dobruja, has always been a point of interchange between different cultures uh, and nations in later periods who were moving around. So what we wanted to look at was how the Roman cemetery reflects some of those population movements and what it can tell us about how people are getting along with each other or not getting along with each other during those periods of demographic change and potentially also during periods of climate change and environmental stress. So the project is focused on first looking at that Roman cemetery and then looking at the interactions between the human population of the site and their environment over a long period of time, a bit more than a thousand years of occupation at the site. And so our initial investigations were to first use geophysical prospection to try to see what was below the surface without excavating, 
to see if we could identify features that were worth exploring and specifically if we could identify uh, denser burial areas. We weren't entirely successful with that, but we did identify a street grid from the residential moment of that part of the site. And also, um, we identified a highly magnetic anomaly, which when we put in a small trench to test the results of the magnetometry survey that we did, discovered was a Hellenistic pottery kiln. Mm -hmm. And in the Hellenistic pottery kiln was a Roman burial. So we had identified an area that we could say was part of the Roman cemetery, as well as an industrial facility related to the residential history of that part mm -hmm. of the, the city. And last year, when we went back, we sought to expand our excavations to understand the pottery kiln and expose at least its entire diameter and the firing floor. And then also to see what the situation was like with the burials. And we found uh, an additional four burials plus a tomb built out of very large stone slabs that we didn't have time to investigate mm -hmm. that is unique in its construction for that part of the cemetery. So a really exciting and unexpected find with uh, next to it an iron sword of a Roman type belonging to the wow. second to fourth centuries AD. So potentially something quite interesting. One of the most fascinating things about history is, like Adam said, the very long time span in which it existed. Uh, and also, right, since it had very close contact with local populations, there's a question of resiliency. How do you ba bounce back from disaster? How do you deal with the coastline changing, right? Because history has started out at this trading hub right on the coast and it had its own harbor but as we get more into the roman period that's disappearing but they still lived there for several hundred years after the harbor disappeared and so i think it's very interesting that even in our little six meter by six meter trench right over the kiln mm -hmm. we have hundreds of years worth of material to look at to see how people engage with one another and engage with the landscape um even in, in very little ways as how you choose to bury someone and using, you know, older structures to, you know, to help you manage your necropolis even, mm -hmm. to, to how you engage with, with the populations that have come before you. Yeah. So how much from looking at the burial site in history, like, it's clear that you can actually understand a lot in terms of how people, as, as you said, bounced back when um, things changed in the region. But is there anything that you see that, um, like, what are the greatest mysteries or, like, inexplicable things in history? Yeah, for example, I mean, uh, I, I'm particularly curious why somebody would bear, why uh, Romans would use an ancient kiln to bury their dead. Seems like a very strange kind of, uh, I guess, procedure to me. So so the general impression that we have is mm -hmm. that the kiln wasn't visible on the surface mm -hmm. or only maybe a few pieces of the wall were visible. Okay. The, the city in the area that we're looking at was built in various periods largely out of mud brick. And when you have a destruction event, as they did routinely, mm -hmm. so that part of the city was burned down, 
somewhere around the end of the 6th or the beginning of the 5th century, rebuilt, burned down again mm -hmm. somewhere in the second half of the 4th century, rebuilt, burned down again somewhere in the first half of the 1st century BC, and then they gave up. But each time it was burned down, it would stand abandoned for a while, it would rain, the mud brick would melt back into layers of clay mm -hmm. and raise the level of the ground so that the strata that we're digging through as we go down below the Roman period are strata that form from the destruction of earlier buildings in the area. Mm -hmm. Unlike a city built entirely out of stone, for example, where you'd have these piles of stone and they would preserve the walls as they came to equilibrium, right? So the top half of the wall would fall down, cover the bottom half of the wall, you'd still have the bottom half of the wall. Mm -hmm. Whereas mud brick uh, or rammed earth buildings tend to just melt. And so what we're looking at is not a standing intact kiln that the Romans then put a burial into as if they were putting a, a pot into the kiln, yeah. but a flat plain with lumps in it formed of a destroyed city mm -hmm. that they approached as if it were a field. And when they dig in, one of the burials follows the line of the wall of the kiln, probably because as they dug, they hit it, and it was easier to just dig beside it than to try to dig through it. But another one flaps down right over the wall of the kiln at right angles and they just cut it for the burial. So it's pretty clear that they aren't aware of the kiln as a structure when they are cutting the graves into which they're putting these burials. So the area becomes a cemetery because they contract the size of the city. Mm -hmm. This has to do with what Susan was saying about resilience. Uh, in some of the periods after destructions, they bounce back and the city is still occupying the same territory. But things had gotten pretty bad by the first century BC. And in fact, the historians sent an embassy to Rome and said, listen, our security situation is terrible. Uh, barbarians keep coming in and attacking us. And if you don't do something about it, we're just going to abandon the city. <laughs> so if you want us to keep the city, help us out. And they must have because they did stay there. And somewhere in the, the late first or early second century AD, the Romans uh, helped them build a new wall for the city. But that wall is um, at the one of the edges of that previous area of settlement. So that entire area that had been residential is now outside the new city walls. Mm -hmm. And once it's outside the walls for ancient cultures, it's okay to bury your dead out there. Mm -hmm. So it simply becomes a more convenient place to bury your dead in that later phase of a much smaller city that has only partially bounced back. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And now the whole situation makes a bit more sense uh, to me. But I was also wondering, are there any things in the city that are still um, very strange or mystifying? That uh, something that doesn't seem to, or that you don't have a good answer for? Hmm. So in general, we proceed on the basis of larger scale phenomena mm -hmm. rather than smaller scale mm -hmm. mysteries. Um, and so in asking in posing research questions about this site, what we focused on is what we don't know in general. Mm -hmm. And what we don't understand well in general is the structure and organization of the archaic and classical settlement in this area of the city that we're working in. Mm -hmm. There's been very little excavation in that area, only at the edges of the, near the city wall, um, at the edges of the plateau on which that part of the settlement is located. So that bigger question, what does the archaic settlement look like? Who's living there? What are they doing? That's a motivating factor for us. The smaller questions where there is a, um, an object or a structure that defies explanation, mm -hmm. there's a bit less of that. But there is, if you, if you uh, want a 
mystery at Histria. Mm -hmm. There are two. One is uh, a bigger question, but one that people are still struggling with. What's the sea level at various points in time? Because there are various explanations about changes in the level of the Black Sea, and there are other explanations, competing explanations, about movements of the land itself, so subsidence or uplift over shorter geological periods of time. And some people maintain that part of the city to the north is underwater in the current coastal lagoon. And some people say that's ridiculous, the edge of the city is where the wall has been documented and there's nothing in the water. So is there a sunken city or not? That's, that's a, a mystery, I suppose. Uh, although I tend to think that the people who say there is not have a stronger argument, which is a sort of a disappointing mystery. And the other is also water-related. There is an urban sanctuary, a religious precinct, in the part of the city's territory that was the earliest to be settled on an outcrop of green metamorphic rock that sticks out into what used to be the Black Sea and is now this coastal lagoon. And in that sanctuary is a temple of Aphrodite, who was associated with seafaring, and so appropriate for a, a port sanctuary, and probably a temple of Apollo. Apollo, the doctor, medical Apollo, was the patron uh, divinity of the city, and another temple that might be a temple of Zeus. So a bunch of religious buildings and areas for cult practice. And we have from the archaic period, from the very earliest period of the site in the seventh century BC, remains of sacrifice and feasting related to religious activity. But there is also a pit. And the pit right now is half filled with water um, and duckweed and snakes and also frogs. And most of the time it's filled with water although it has been pumped out when they were excavating it. And at the bottom were some structures, some ambiguous walls. And the buildings at the site seem to have taken this natural pit in the bedrock, probably natural pit in the bedrock, into account. So the question is, what is that? Is it just a natural feature that people work around? Or as some steps next to the Temple of Aphrodite suggest, was it actually part of the cult landscape in the sanctuary? And so people did something was it empty in the archaic period with these walls at the bottom so it served some sort of ritual purpose? The mm -hmm. Greeks like pits uh, in sanctuaries because they are portals to the underworld and sometimes you can use them for initiation rituals. Or was it not used? Did it have a source of drinkable water? Did it not have a source of drinkable water? Where did the water on the site come from anyway given the, the height of the saltwater table at various points in time? So these questions of water and the interaction of the original settlers with their environment are still very much open and mysterious, I suppose. I think I think some of the smaller mysteries, though, are um, kind of fun to figure out. Like uh, when we had the magnetometry survey done a couple years ago, we had evidence of, you know, potential human structures underground that as we dug down into it, we found out were modern day ground squirrels. And so, you know, that's one of the smaller mysteries that you answer that's just like more frustrating than it is interesting. Uh, and then even kind of the mundane questions about why is there an iron sword? It seems to be in relation to the tomb, but it's 
higher than the tomb, you know, so did people just leave that sword there? Why did they leave that sword there? And realizing that there's a lot of those smaller questions that we won't be able to answer quite Mm -hmm. because they're not, you know, they more have to do with just what's happened over time and how humans misplace things or decide to put things that we can't quite answer with the evidence. Yeah, and it's, if you want an analogy, think about a a crime show on TV, right? A Mm -hmm. a police procedural, especially one of the ones that involves a lot of lab science. The arc of those shows is at the beginning you have a mystery, right? Somebody's dead, who did Mm -hmm. it? And at the end, you have all the answers. You pieced it together with the scientific evidence. You have a full flow of time and events from Mm -hmm. start to finish. You have a culprit who's obviously guilty. Now imagine that show stopped 15 minutes in. That's archaeology. Right? We've started to do some of the research. Yeah. We have some pieces. That's all we get. Yeah. The rest is is essentially interpretation and and educated guesswork. Because you don't have anybody to I don't know, interview or, or ask about exactly. it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I guess a lot of it is just like where some person happened to put their pot or accidentally break mm-hmm. it. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I know that for your collaboration, you also worked with a lot of archaeologists in Romania, right? And um, can you talk about that kind of collaboration and um, how it went for you? Um, was there a language barrier, or a cultural barrier? Um, any differences in the way that you practice archaeology? Sure. And I, my own work started in Italy with that dig when I was 15, but it continued in Italy all the way through my graduate work. So my dissertation was on working in Sicily and South Italy, and I had a lot of experience working with Italians in collaborative projects. When I came to the University of Texas to work with Joe Carter at the Institute of Classical Archaeology, I shifted my focus to the Black Sea and started working in Crimea, where mm-hmm. I worked for about 10 years, uh, not speaking Russian uh, or really having any idea of the archaeology there or ever having been to Crimea before 2002. So I had a lot of experience then working in an environment that was much more Mm -hmm. unfamiliar. The Italian environment was very European, and while it had its idiosyncrasies, we were all pretty much on the same archaeological page in terms Mm -hmm. of theory and method. With Ukraine, with Crimea, it was quite different. There were different traditions in play, different histories of research, different expectations about what a collaboration looked like, different expectations about how things could be funded and what could be done or not done. Um, And that took a long time to get used to. And there was an enormous language barrier in Crimea because most of my colleagues spoke very little English. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the first time I was there, I worked with a a very dear friend now, but we only had broken German in common. Mm -hmm. And so we had to sort of try to get by in broken German. And um, I eventually had a translator, an interpreter. And in the the first four or five years that I was there, a lot, well, I would say between 2002 and maybe 2005, when my Russian started to get good enough that I could directly interact, a lot of my interactions with my colleagues were mediated through translators, which really changes the dynamic and offers a lot of potential for misunderstanding and also subjects you to the agenda of of a translator. And we were very lucky. We had really, really reliable people who had excellent commands of both English and Russian and Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, a, it was a different way of working than I had been used to in Italy where I understood how to talk to people. Mm-hmm. 
With Romania, I found that, in fact, among the, the uh, university-educated people that I was dealing with, the professional archaeologists at the Institute of Archaeology, the students, almost everybody over 40 spoke French, and almost everybody under 40 spoke English. Mm-hmm. And so it was easier, although it also placed less burden on me to learn Romanian, which is harder because I am now older than I was when I had to learn my other languages, and it becomes more difficult to absorb a new language. I am working on Romanian, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a barrier to not have it in the beginning just because of the level of English or French preparation that my colleagues had. So, and they, I think, in many ways, because of the 20th century history of Romania, had some things in common with my colleagues in Crimea and their training, but they also had a lot of things in common with my Italian colleagues and the general European milieu. So it was less, um, it required less adjustment in terms of, of method and the kinds of things people were interested in looking at than it did uh, to a certain extent in Crimea. Although I will say that because of the focus of Soviet archeology span on non-elite populations, in many ways my colleagues in Crimea had better training in doing the archeology span of daily life mm-hmm. than people that I'd worked with in Europe who were focused on elite architecture and statues. Um, and the Romanian tradition actually had stayed much more European and German in particular in its interest in architecture and inscriptions. So there was a much greater emphasis at Histria over the 20th century on architecture and inscriptions than there had been over the 20th century at Kersnesis in Crimea, mm-hmm. where they'd been focusing on environmental remains and daily life and domestic architecture of non-elites. And I think also just speaking as working with uh, working with Ukrainians and Romanians in the field at history of this past summer, um, you run into cultural differences that are not the ones that you expected. So you expect a language barrier and with enough confidence on either side and enough willingness, you can really get over that language barrier. Um, we had two Ukrainians on the dig uh, and uh, several mini Romanians and so I think one of the biggest differences was you know what what tools we preferred you know what types of shovels we preferred um the joke about how the you know one type of trowel is like the capitalist trowel and another is the communist trowel right (laughs) and that's how you differentiated between um the Americans in the field using their their diamond shaped trowels um the triangle trowels and the the Romanians using the square trowels um, but I think it, you know, a lot of the cultural issues that we found were actually kind of fun to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not so much as a cultural difference as sort of personal, you know, personal preferences where, uh, you know, we sometimes play music on a dig and the Ukrainians would play a lot of Europop, a lot of Avicii, but like remixed versions, you know, <laughs> nonstop. Um, and a lot of the Americans would play kind of oldies, and then there were the generational differences where we had Adam's daughter on the dig, and she's 16? 15. 15. Um, and, you know, she would bring out her own music. And so, you know, things that could potentially be uh, issues 
can very easily be turned into something that's, you know, a bonding experience. You're also learning Romanian to help yeah. with the project. How is yeah. that going? And I think it's interesting being a grad student, especially in classics, because I'm already going through all of my other comprehensive exams and other language exams. Um, and I think this summer I depended a lot on my uh, my Russian uh, knowledge because we had those two Ukrainians on the dig, and so it was very easy for me to like slip into a language I knew a lot better than mm-hmm. than Romanian. But with Romanian, it's always a work in progress. And so, you know, I had more time to work on it last fall, and now we're getting to the spring, less time to work on it. But luckily, I'm, I'm supported here at UT by uh, Dr. Jason Roberts, mm-hmm. who has taught me Romanian and is continuously working with me to improve my, my Romanian. And you predict that in the future you'll be working a lot in that part of the world on archaeology? I really hope so. We'll see, though. What do you think is the future for history and your project there? Will you continue working on it next summer or sometime in the future? So we're in the... The, the short answer is yes. This is what I envision as a long-term project. I think that... The collaborative relationships we've established are very positive. There's a lot of room for us to contribute to a very robust training program for young Romanian archaeologists with some of the scientific work that we're doing, with some techniques that haven't uh, necessarily caught on or that rely Mm -hmm. on equipment that isn't present yet in Romania. And I think that there's potential for a very fruitful mix of methods and ideas there's certainly potential for a lot of information to be recovered along the lines of human environment interactions and understanding migration, population movement, health, how people are relating to each other, how uh, resources are distributed within the community at different times. But the trick with archaeology is that it requires money. And mm-hmm. when you are doing archaeology abroad as an American, it requires even more money because mm-hmm. it has enormous travel costs. So we are constantly writing grants. Um, This has not been a great season for our grant writing. So we are at the moment trying to figure out how to finance this coming summer's project and waiting to hear about a large NSF grant that we applied for at the end of January, which would fund another two years starting in the the fall if we we are successful in getting it. But the extent of our work and the scope in any given season of what we're doing in the field is reliant on the funding that we're able to find. So it, it, it adds a layer of uncertainty to our plans, which is actually honestly fairly stressful, but, uh, but pretty normal for archaeology. And in addition, I think, to the big central grants, typically the grad students and the volunteers on the dig apply for their own small fellowships and own small uh, scholarships and the crees here actually at UT has been really beneficial with that in the Mm -hmm. past Um, but it's always this kind of rush up to the summer to figure out you know figure out how not even how you know we will be once there how to fund you know 
how to fund feeding ourselves, how to fund rent, how to fund travel. It's insanely complicated. Yeah, I can imagine. But either way, I wish you best of luck with your project because this is something that's very important and not just in the field of archaeology, but also it seems to better understand our own lives here in Texas. And thank you again so much for coming to the show. I'm so glad that I got to talk that we got to talk about this topic and best of luck. Thank you very much for thank having you. us. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.